Hello, friends. You are listening to the Eucharist Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in downtown Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and we are so glad that you listened in. If you would like to join us, we are currently meeting on Zoom, so you can join us from anywhere in the world. We meet at 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, uh, Eastern Standard Time, and we have a, about an hour-long gathering and then a half an hour time afterwards where you can enter into a breakout group to uh, discuss things with either the same people every week or in a, in a group that mixes it up week to week. Uh, also, if you are a part of our congregation in the area of Hamilton, we also invite you to join in on Sunday mornings when we have a community check-in time from 10 to 10.30, and we have a kids program that runs from 9 to 9.30, 9.30 to 10 as well. So you can find all the details for that at eucharistchurch.ca. But for now, we're going to carry on with our sermon series, Reclaiming Christianity. Grace and peace. I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of John. If you have uh, a Bible in front of you, I invite you to open it up to the Gospel of John chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 37. Uh, the translation I'm reading from is going to use the word logos instead of the word word, um, because the idea of the logos of God was an idea of God's presence, God's um, accessible wisdom and principles of love that are accessible to each person. And so if you hear logos in this, that is what it is. It might say word in your translations and uh, invite you to just let these words wash over you as we uh, take a moment to settle into this theme of reclaiming scripture. Jesus has just healed a man. It's a fantastic story. I wish we had time. I'm really trying to cut these sermons down, but boy, that's hard for me. But in chapter five at the beginning, you got to read it. There's a guy laying there. He's waiting for an angel to pass by and make the waters move so he can be dipped in it and be made well. You know, ordinary stuff. It's the best. And uh, Jesus ends up healing him. And then the people are like, how did he heal him? Who did this? And uh, they eventually find out that it was Jesus who healed the man. And when they come to him, he uh, launches into this incredible teaching, which, again, I wish I had the time to just read all the way through. But he's, he's really a trickster in chapter 5. If you're going to read this at home, I highly recommend uh, reading Jesus with a, just a little bit of silliness uh, to his voice. But then as he starts to close out his teaching, he says this to the uh, religious leaders of the day who are upset that he's done this work on the Sabbath. And the Father, having sent me, that one has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, nor do you have his logos abiding in you. For this one whom he sent, in him you do not have faith. Because you think to take hold of the life of the age, you search through the scriptures. And those are what testify concerning me. Yet you do not wish to come to me in order to take hold of life. I do not receive glory from men, but I have known you, that you do not have God's love in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, that one you receive. How are you able to have faith, receiving glory from one another, yet you do not receive the glory coming from the one of God? Do not think I shall accuse you before the Father. 
the one accusing you is Moses, in whom you have hoped. For if you had faith in Moses, then you would have had faith in me, for that one wrote concerning me. But if you do not have faith in that one's writings, how will you have faith in my utterances? This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus here with the religious leaders of his day is making a point that uh, Christians have continued to fight about for a very long time and debate about exactly what it means. But the one thing that I think we can know for sure from a text like this is that the point of Jesus is, uh, the, the point Jesus is trying to make is that the entire scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, the five books of Moses, which these religious leaders would have studied diligently, they are not there for their own end. They're ultimately pointing to something and they're ultimately pointing to someone. And Jesus steps in and says, I'm the one this has been pointing for. For a long time, this story has been pointing here. And if you don't understand that the entire biblical story is pointing to me, Jesus is saying, then you're going to miss what God is doing. It's possible to study the scriptures, to memorize the scriptures, to obsess over the scriptures, to know every single word, and yet to miss the most obvious point, which is Christ who reveals the logos of God, the love of God, who we see when we have God's love in us. We see God everywhere. So uh, that basic idea that the scriptures were always meant to point us to Christ. There's a lot we could say about that, but I thought I'd take us on a bit of a journey of uh, like I said, I tried to write a simple sermon. I, I can't do it. I don't know. I can't write a simple sermon. This is just needlessly complex. However, it might be helpful to two of you and everybody else is here too. So let's buckle up and just see where we go. But I, I really, this has changed my life. So I really want to share it. And if it's helpful to you, uh, amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to track this at kind of a bigger level of like sociology and kind of shifts in our culture. But all of them, I think have been felt by each of us that you and I have felt everything we're going to describe here. And so just so you understand a bit of that context, I also know that this stuff can be boring, so I made slides. Again, it was kind of fun. Okay, so let's do this. Okay, so there was a time where this pointing to Jesus worked at a level of simplicity. That there was... That the, the Bible made sense and it was amazing and it was magical and it pointed you to Christ and it caught you up in God's story. And, and it was this beautiful fusion of the physical and the spiritual. And for a long time, part of the reason why that worked is that the world was really simple. There was a simplicity to it all. First of all, most people didn't have Bibles and most people didn't read Bibles. You would have a Bible for maybe a whole town, and it was in Latin, and maybe it was gold, like Pope Francis is here. And when you started church, you paraded the Bible in, like this picture up at the top. You paraded it in, and there was incense going, and everybody thought, wow, look at this, the Bible is here. We get to hear the very words of God. These words could change everything. These words could bless us or curse us. And so you can understand how for thousand for, for over a thousand years almost 1500 years this is the way that people interact with the scriptures so when they point to jesus they point with this urgency they pull people in to myth and into origin where do we come from they're, they're mystical and magical they're full of these characters who are archetypes of how humans exist and massive themes they give a meta-narrative to the people 
that everyone's stories, everyone's life fits within this one big grand story. And above all of that, they did. They pointed to Christ. There's a simplicity to this kind of biblical reading. Because at the time that we're talking about, there wasn't a lot to stress about in terms of complexity. People got sick and people died and people suffered, all that normal stuff. But there wasn't science. There wasn't other world religions. There wasn't news. You didn't have friends from every culture on earth. Things were simple. What I find interesting is that there are some people for whom this very simplistic understanding of, of the Bible still is very powerful for, um, but it tends to be children. I've been reading the Bible a lot with my kid, and uh, I'm going to use the story of Jonah a couple times throughout this uh, sermon, but if you read the story of Jonah with a kid, I'll tell you what they like about it. They like that there's a big fish. That is like their favorite part. They're like, this is so cool. It's all very simple. God loves us. He sent a big fish and it spit him out. This is my daughter's favorite picture. That's how she thinks it happened. And it is to her larger than life. And maybe some of you can relate to that. When you first heard the Bible, whether you were a teenager or a child or more recently, the Bible can come to life when you first read it. It's got giants and floods and towers and fire falling from heaven and miracles and this big fish. But all of that changes for us at some point, for most of us. And all of that changed at a more societal level as we entered into this season called the Enlightenment, roughly 500 years ago. There were all these advances. And the Bible, which was meant to be this perfect fusion of physical and spiritual, the world of the Enlightenment splits those two. It splits the physical and the spiritual and it begins to focus only on the physical, which makes all these old Bible stories far more complex than they used to be. And this is where I want us to go. Uh, I just want us to think about the fact that we are inheritors of complexity. The world we live in is more complex. Engaging with the scriptures is more complicated than it would have been in a simpler culture. Being a Christian, believing in God is more complicated I read a book recently that was saying, how is it possible that 500 years ago, it was practically impossible not to believe in God? And 500 years later, it is very difficult, if not sometimes intellectually impossible, to believe in God because we live in such a complicated physical culture. And so people responded, and people still respond, in different ways to complexity, especially when it comes to the Bible. The first is that some decided to fight the complexity. They said, if we're going to fight about complexity and we're in this physical time, then we're going to prove the Bible is literally physically true all the way down, regardless of verse or chapter. And that's where we got things like uh, the Creation Museum pictured here. <laughs> with a replica of the Ark and dinosaurs, which apparently ruled the world with people for a while. And it's, it's, it's kind of a funny thing that, you know, no legitimate scientists seem to take these legitimately, but it comes from this instinct of if we're in a physical time, if we're in a world that's complex, we need to fight for the Bible. We need to fight for the truth. We need to make sure that if we take everything literal and physical only, that the Bible wins the day. And so when it comes to the story of Jonah, uh, if you were to talk about the story of Jonah through this lens of fighting for, you know, the physical victory in a complicated time, you get people saying, well, God could send a fish that big. 
Like that's kind of the whole point of the story. If you if people start arguing about did all of this literally happen, physically happen, and exactly how did it happen, you get into these fights of well, God could do that. God could do that, and so you're fighting in the complexity. You could also uh, have a time where where oh sorry, and then people would say. Uh, if you're fighting in the complexity, that it's a perfect book then. The Bible's a perfectly literal book in this complex time. Uh, another note then would be that some people flee from the biblical story and from the Bible because the world becomes too complex. Maybe storms won in their lives. People got sick and died and they tried to pray like the Bible taught and it didn't do what they expected. Maybe we find the stories confusing. Maybe we meet people from other cultures and we find it uh, maybe that our, you know, we start to think our Bible's even harmful to others as we hear how people have, have used the Bible before. And if we were to interact with the Bible in this way around the book of jo uh, Jonah, the complexity, some people just flee from the story and they insist that this is just a bad book, that the Bible should be discarded, it should be thrown away because it's too complex to think about how to use it. So some in the complexity of our modern culture fight with the Bible, fight to win. Some people flee from the Bible and say it's a bad book. And still others try to tame the Bible. This is where in uh, the last 100 years, you've seen this incredible focus on trying to understand the Bible, to put it under a telescope, to take apart all the pieces, to understand all the sources, to figure out exactly what's going on. But the problem when you start doing endless hermeneutics and source criticism and start giving into all the postmodernism is eventually you got to figure out what's even the point of the Bible. And so if some people with the Jonah story in that fighting sense, perfect book sense, say the story of Jonah is about how God could send a big fish and God could make this happen. And other people are saying the story of Jonah is maybe a reflection that, that it can't be trusted. The book is lying. It's bad. When some people tame the Bible, they end up just saying something like, I like Pinocchio better. Like if it's just another story featuring a whale and a guy, if there's no way to know in the complexity of the world exactly what this means, if there's no way to prove this out, then what's the point in even holding on to the Bible? It's just another book. And so that's where I feel like a lot of us find ourselves. We find ourselves caught in this complexity. We don't quite know what to do with scripture. And then often that leads people to ask the question, why not just get rid of the Bible? But I want to push back big time on that idea of just throwing the Bible out. And not just for the reasons that Christians typically say we shouldn't throw the Bible out. So obviously we shouldn't get rid of the Bible from a Christian perspective because it's God-inspired. Every word in scripture is God's message to us, telling us the story of his redemption. It's got genres, it's complicated, yes, but it's all pointing us to God and it's all pointing us to Christ. And so of course there's one reason why we should keep the Bible. It points us to Christ. He's baked right in. Everything in scripture is pointing us in that direction and we need Christ. So we shouldn't throw out the Bible. But even if you're not sure exactly where you would land on statements like that, there are so many other reasons that also we have to keep the Bible in our lives and in our faith. The Bible is incredibly reckless in how it speaks to our existential crisis and questions of reality. The new myths of our culture, the new stories of morality, they're just not old enough. They're just not ancient enough. I like Pixar movies as much as anyone, but they are hardly the layered, complex, tightly dense, packed stories of scripture. 
They're often products of worship of mammon and money and colonialism. And, you know, we don't know where those stories are going to go, but we know that the Bible is this primal book written from people consistently on the underside of power, which somehow was gathered together across thousands of years and dozens of authors to form a cohesive narrative that points to a real historical figure who completes that narrative. It tells us stories that we need today of disease and famine, what to do when empires rise and fall. It has prophets speaking truth to power, the complicated relationships between parents and children and family. It has stories of sin and murder and grief. It has stories of body and soul, religion and politics. It draws together the past and the future into a present moment, and all of it is tied into the ultimate source of life and the clear picture of eternity that is found in Christ. What kind of book are you gonna find to replace this? What kind of Netflix series are you gonna binge that's gonna do this? The Bible can be the worst book when misused and abused, but that's only because it's the best book. The greater something is, the more it can be corrupted. And so if we're going to be people who are in the process of reclaiming Christianity, then we're going to have to include a reclaiming of our sacred text, a reclaiming of Scripture. And in this case, it's not just that we're going to reclaim Scripture, but that we actually have to prepare ourselves to be reclaimed by Scripture. Because when it was given to us in simplicity, it spoke powerfully. But we're the ones who have gotten lost in complexity, not the story. And so we're going to need to change some of the way that we interact with Scripture if we're going to allow it to speak authoritatively and, and, and catch us up once again in the story that it tells that points us to Christ. Okay, so we'll do a little activity here. Um, pretend you have magic glasses. If you were all kids, I'd say put on your magic glasses, but pretend you had magic glasses and you put on your magic glasses and oh my gosh, suddenly you can see bacteria. Just imagine how horrible the no-frills would be then. You're walking around and you can see little floating bacteria. Oh my gosh. You might take your glasses off and then you put on a different pair of magic glasses and now you see wind. You see air moving around. You take off the magic glasses, you put on different magic glasses and now you can see emotions. Imagine you could see hovering around people swirling colors and shapes that are their emotions. And imagine that if you wore those glasses long enough, when you took the glasses off, you could begin to see that way without the glasses. Imagine you could train your eyes to see things you couldn't see previously in the same way we train our mind to learn languages and we train our tongues and our ears to speak languages that we've never spoken. I think that scripture is actually designed and, and God gave us scripture not just to be read with one set of glasses, or not just to be heard like it's one language, but that there are actual multiple ways of reading these stories, multiple ways of listening to these stories, multiple languages, multiple visuals that we can have when we engage with the scriptures. And often what's happened when we get lost in complexity is that we've worked so hard to master the Bible, to understand it, to get above it, instead of putting on a different set of glasses to be able to drop back into it and see it more clearly. 
Once we start trying to figure the Bible out entirely, we sort of place ourselves over the biblical story and over the story of humanity instead of finding our place right within us, right within it. Uh, Jesus gives us this four directional way to understand our relationship with God, to love the Lord your God with your body, your heart, your mind, and your soul or your psyche. Uh, and so when Jesus says that, I, I think immediately there must then be four ways of interacting with the text according to those levels. A way of reading scripture to ask, what do I do in my body? A way of reading scripture and asking, what do I do in my heart? How does this uh, emote in me? A way of reading scripture that is my mind. How do I think about the world? And a way of reading scripture that is my soul, which is a bit of a weird word that we don't quite know what to do with, but it's the word psyche in Greek, and we know a bit more about psyche, about the way that I understand things, the way that all things connect, that soul level of reading. And the church historically has taught multiple ways of reading scripture. The literal reading of scripture was one of them. Another one was the eschatological way of reading scripture, which is to say, looking ahead with the scriptures to what is yet to come. The allegorical way of reading scripture was another one where you read every text looking for Christ. You don't take every text literally, but you take every text as pointing you to Christ. There's the moral way of reading scripture where you look for ethical uh, suggestions or ethical patterns that you find in the biblical stories. And if anyone wants to talk about any of this, come talk to me another time. I'm just dying to like just chat with people about this. And I don't, there's no time in the sermon. But the point is that there's at least four, five, six, seven ways to read scripture. There's so many different lenses. And what's crazy to me is that nobody told me this. Nobody told me this. I just pick it up and flip it open and it was either what is God saying to me when I was a kid, simplicity, or it was, all right, I got to find a biblical commentary to try to figure this thing out, complexity. But maybe I've just been wearing the same lens for too long. Sometimes the people that are writing off scripture so quickly are people that have never really understood it which is not even meant to be a knock. I'm confessing that it's taken me a long time to understand other ways to read scripture. But to write off this sacred ancient book that is charged with mystery and wonder and points us to the incarnate eternity without understanding it would just be foolish. So maybe think about the lens that you've taken to the text. When you open up the Bible and read it, what lens do you bring? Now, if right now that lens is fruitful, stick with it. If that lens is helping you love God, helping you love your neighbor, that lens is helping you become more like Christ day by day, then stick with it. But if when you open the scriptures, you find yourself anxious, you find yourself overwhelmed, you find yourself getting lost in your own head, then maybe you need to put on some different glasses to escape from that complexity and to be able to read it a little more like you used to. If you're used to spiritualizing the text, try to read it more literally. Try to read it like a narrative, if it's a narrative genre. If you're used to a literal reading of the text or trying to understand where this happened, what date, where were they? Try using your imagination. Put yourself in the story and ask, how do I feel as I'm in this story? If you find Old Testament texts troubling, texts about war and violence, I'm not even saying that you need to figure it out. Just change your glasses for a while. Take off the literal glasses, 
Take off the historical critical glasses. Take off the moral glasses for a while. Put on those allegorical ones, those ones that just look for Jesus. And look in the Old Testament for where you see Christ and his grace, or you see its absence. The point isn't to figure the Bible out. The point is to get into the biblical story. And then to have the biblical story get into you, always with the end of then seeing Christ more clearly, both then and now. And once you start switching those glasses, it actually has a remarkable effect on us. It actually, and I swear this is true, it makes things simple again. It really does. Something about it makes it simple again. And stories like Jonah become far more layered and complex, with big fish, with lots of questions about history and context, with foreshadowing of Christ, and with new questions that we need to ask of the text. All right, is this all making sense at all so far? Are people kind of following along with this? <laughs> okay, well, that's a relief. So uh, lately, as I've been doing this most, I've been revisiting biblical stories with kids because we do kids' table on Sunday morning, and lately, because we don't have uh, a whole lot happening on Sundays, I've been doing the kids' classes. So I've been reading these Bible stories with kids, and I've also been reading them with my daughter more often. And I don't know about any of you who have read Bible stories recently with kids, but they get really troubling sometimes, don't they? <laughs> like, you start off reading, and you're like, this is fun, there's a big fish, there's a flood, and then one day your daughter's like, why was, was everyone on that boat? <laughs> and you're like, ah... So yeah, it starts in this amazing space, but it can get troubling again. But what's really been interesting to me is that often as I'm reading a text with my daughter or with people from our church, some of those kids, they don't jump right to the troubling. Sometimes they're actually in this beautiful simplicity where they understand God is good, where they understand the story is beautiful. And it's perfectly suited time for me as someone who's lived in complexity to try to enter simplicity again. And I just think this is so brilliant. How brilliant that core to the Christian faith is the idea of intergenerational relationships. That whether you have your own biological children or not, all of you are tied to children. And you can't get away from them in the church because the church is a family, which means no matter how complex the world gets, no matter how much your head is spinning around ethics and hermeneutics and biblical criticism and all this stuff, no matter what you're feeling, You've still got to talk with a three-year-old about it. That's awesome. You still have to distill complexity into something simple enough to give a kid because God doesn't want us lost in complexity. It's not good for us, even just emotionally, psychologically, even just at a human level, Never mind spirit. It's not good for us to get lost in complexity. It's disorienting. You can, you can get ill, get lost in complexity. No, we're always meant to take it back to simplicity. That's why children require us, and that's why we need children, and that's why the church has always been intergenerational, that as I read with my kid, she asks questions and I ask questions, and they're totally different questions, but we're reading the same story. Let me pull up one last little Jonah example here. So in this Jonah example, okay, this is this, I know this looks complicated, but stick with me. This is <laughs> that when my daughter reads the story of Jonah, she reads simplicity. It's magical, it's mystical. There's a big fish. 
When I enter into complexity, I start having to do all this work. Who could know if it's true? Who could know what it means? Who could ever figure this out? I'm trying to control things. I'm fighting for things. I'm grumpy. But simplicity, again, is like a spiral upwards. That you look out one direction of a spiral when you're young in simplicity. And you see wonder. And you see beauty. And you enter complexity and look out the other side and you see anxiety and worry and accusation and fear. And when you enter simplicity again, you become like a child. And you ask new questions. When I'm reading the story of Jonah, I'm asking, how does God find me in nature, even unpleasant experiences in nature? I'm asking, who don't I want to show mercy to? I'm asking, why do I become so bitter? I'm asking, who do I judge? I'm asking, how has Christ given me grace in my lowest moments? But the whole time I'm asking this, my brain is also in the same space my daughter's is. Looking at that big fish, looking at those larger than life stories, allowing myself once again to look out the right side and see the wonder of scripture. Okay, so going to kind of start landing this plane here. I've been trying to give some practices at the end of these sermons, um, little linguistic shifts that maybe will just, one of them maybe will stick in your brain or help you as you're reading scripture, just to think about like, oh, right, there was that word that was used. I've been trying to just use words to kind of, you know, trap them in your brain so you can't escape them later. And uh, there's three shifts that I also want to suggest. These have been helpful for me, whatever lens I'm using. They've been helpful for me getting out of complexity and entering into simplicity again. So I'll share with you guys these three shifts, and I wrote them down since we're in slide mode. The first one, this is one that was mentioned by Peter Jokis on Sunday when we were talking about scripture. He said, I try to read the Bible for information more than, or sorry, for transformation more than for information. That when I'm opening the scriptures, I want to meet the living spirit of God who can take what is at one level just words on a page but those words on a page are the story that we find ourselves in. And so the Holy Spirit can lift those words off a page and just drop you in them. But you have to enter into that time of reading with a little bit of intent. Uh, I recommend starting with some prayer and asking God to drop you into whatever story, whatever sentence, whatever phrase you need to be dropped into so that you're not just reading information, but you're actually encountering the transformative power of the Spirit and allowing the Scripture and the Spirit to surface that together. Another one that I find helpful is the shift from reading the Bible as a book of what has happened to a book of what is happening. That I'm reading about things that have happened before, but that there's nothing in Scripture that doesn't echo to today. I'm asking questions about who am I in this story? Where do I find myself? Or maybe asking questions of, where does this scripture come back today? I've been reading through Samuel, and boy, you want to read about insecure power, maniacal kings and rulers who do everything in their power, even break their own rules in order to cling on to what they have. And the fear and the anxiety in that story, gosh, it comes to life. And it points me to Christ. That's also uh, where Lectio Divina can come in so helpful. This old practice that if you want to hear more, I can either tell you about it or point you to somebody who can share more about it with you. But the idea of entering into these stories with your imagination 
so that they no longer become a book about what's happened, but a library telling you what is happening at every moment. Finally, the last shift, which we've referenced multiple times, but you just have to keep coming back to it. A shift from focusing on every text as the literal word of God to focusing on Christ as the word of God. And that every word in scripture is pointing me to the living Christ, whether the Christ to come, Christ who's come, Christ who will come again. But that the entire point of the Bible is to point you to that Christ. As Jesus himself said, you can pour over the text, but never encounter the logos, never encounter the Christ, never encounter the living God. Now, if you want a biblical argument for this, Brian Zond did a sermon at the Meeting House a little while ago that is really exceptional for kind of rooting this idea within the canon of Scripture. I love that Scripture has like, it gives you the key to undo its own authority so that you find the deeper authority. Just brilliant. But uh, so he's got a great sermon about that if you want to learn more about that. But, you know, whenever you're reading the Scripture and anything causes you anxiety or worry because it doesn't seem like Christ, just pause on it and ask. Does this show me Christ? Does this show me the absence of Christ? And even if I don't end up understanding this by the end, I know that I am following Christ. I'm not following the Bible. And so I can leave a text unresolved. I can leave a text with questions in my mind. I don't need to figure everything out. So there's some tips. I hope they're helpful. Uh, tonight, I was reading the Bible with Clem after dinner, which is kind of the time that we do that. And uh, we often talk about how the Bible is the book that we keep on reading. It's the book that we keep coming back to. So we read a lot of books, and after we're done most books, we put them aside, and once she phases out of them, we never read that book again. But the Bible's the book we keep coming back to. She gets bigger kids' Bibles, different kids' Bibles, and eventually she'll get her own Bible, and she'll keep coming back to it. New answers, new insights, new stories. And every time we come back to it, it has changed somehow because we have changed, because it's this living story. And it got me thinking about the point of reading scripture at all, which is to do with our father what our parents do with us or what we do with the kids in our life, which is to revisit the story again and again and to maybe feel a little bit like we are reading the Bible with God and maybe he feels like how I feel when I read with my daughter. That as I sit there and I watch her read and grow and learn and get frustrated and solve old questions and find new questions, that he feels joy in that. That God feels joy as you wrestle with the scriptures, as you re-engage with the scriptures, as you grow and find new questions to ask, that that brings your father joy always remembering the story, always seeing Christ on every page.